and recording. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Uncensored Critic podcast. Uh, today, I'm joined on a personal level, a very special guest. Uh, this is Professor David Barnett. Uh, good morning. Oh, good morning. Good afternoon to you, David. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. It's good to be here. Good, good. I'm very happy to very happy to see you again. Uh, on a personal level, this is a very special experience for me because David is a previous tutor of mine from the University of Sussex. He taught me for one year back in 2014 to, to, to 2015. And at the end of the year, he decided to pack his bags and head off to York University to become, well, who could blame him, professor of drama at York University. So quite an exciting post. Uh, David is uh, a man who simply, to put it in a nutshell, he loves his Brecht and loves everything about his work. He's been studying him for several years. Uh, David's research encompasses Brecht's work as a theatre maker and practitioner. Apart from Brecht, he's also written and studied about Heiner Muller, Rainer Werner, and uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder. Did I get that right? The pronunciation. Fassbinder, but it's okay. Fassbinder. Cool. Uh, the, my pronunciation of some German words today might be a bit off, so please do, please do correct me. Uh, and he's also written about documentary theatre, post post dramatic theatre, and post Brechtian theatre. Uh, if you want to know some about his published works, he's written two books. Uh, most recently, the history of the Berlin Ensemble, published in two thousand and fifteen and his first publication called Brecht in Practice, Theatre, Theory and Performance back in 2014. Uh, as well as David's also written several articles published in Contemporary Theatre Review, Contemporary European Playwrights and all other major publishing sources. And also I was privileged to actually attend one of David's talks a few years ago at Goldsmith University back in 2014, where he gave a lovely talk, uh, the title of it, which I think is quite interesting for today, uh, I believe it was called, There is no style of Brechtian acting. Uh, you describe the actor as a social interpreter. And I think that is a lovely phrase which we'll get onto today. Um, so yeah, so today we're gonna to talk about the foundations of Brecht and what it means, what is Brechtian theatre all about and how can it be implemented in practice? So a bit of, bit of background on Brecht. He was born in Augsburg, did I get that right, David? Yes, I did. Uh, in Augsburg, in Germany, in 1898, he grew up throughout the First World War, and writing with, and his writing was heavily influenced by the chaos and the destruction of that it caused at the time. In the mid 1920s, Brecht encountered Marxism and began to think about how how that might affect his way of writing. Uh, Brecht fled to the USA in exile in 1941, where he spent most of his time creative writing. He returned to Germany in late 1948. He favoured the socialist East Germany over the capitalist West to form the Berliner Ensemble. Uh, the company enjoyed great success in Paris during the 1950s, and unfortunately, he wasn't able to see the success in London as he passed away shortly before, uh, in August 1956, shortly before the company actually left Berlin. So, so that is Brecht for you. Uh, so let's jump straight in. So welcome, David. Thank you again for coming along. Uh, so I suppose to begin with, um, so this is a question I think to sort of get things going, is where is Brecht coming from? What is exactly, what message does he want to send out into the world with his work and with his practice? Okay, uh, where he's coming from? Obviously you, you said that um, his writing starts from the chaos of war, uh, but you also mentioned that he discovered Marxism in the mid 1920s and it's really the Marxist Brecht that I'm interested in. It's the Marxist Brecht that most people um, 
start to study because that's where most of his theories of theatre come from. And although the early Brecht is absolutely fascinating, I would recommend anyone to read uh, his first play, Baal, or In the Jungle of the Cities, which is a play like none other that, I, that I'm aware of, that making sense of that play um, really is quite mind boggling. Um, but I'm talking pretty much about Brecht after uh, the mid 1920s and the revelation that Marxism had on him. And so Brecht's theatre emanates from an understanding of reality that is dynamic and that is riven by contradiction. And this idea is what underpins most of his theoretical positions. So Brecht would often like to um, contrast his theatre with the theatre of naturalism. Mm. And we might say that naturalism is all about rendering the world as we perceive it, and that is a form of realism, that uh, if we get close to that world, we get a sense that we are representing it properly. But to Brecht, this was the representation of surfaces. And he believed, along with his sort of Marxist ideas, that we shouldn't just look at the surface of reality, but dig below yeah. so that ultimately the theatre is saying, why do we behave in these ways? Yeah. Why is this person like that? Why is that other person behaving like that towards that person? And this idea that reality is constructed out of contradictions was the way that he tried to understand reality. And so if you, um, yeah, we could think about contradictoriness in our own selves that we could say, would our, would our parents or guardians describe us in, as having the same characteristics as our friends might describe us or our partners? And the answer is probably no. <laughs> that we exhibit different uh, characteristics to different people that we're speaking to, and there are reasons for that. And so those two descriptions given of, of the same person may be contradictory. And we might trace that back to, okay, there are certain rules for the ways that we treat uh, our parents, and there might be other kinds of rules for ways that we treat friends. Mm. Already, this is asking a question, why are there different rules? Why can't we treat everyone in the same way? And Brecht would trace this back to a notion of society, that society um, articulates different rules and yeah, we can conform to them, we can transgress them, we can ignore them, but it would be impossible to believe that there weren't different sets of rules. Yeah. Now, if we take this even further, we could say, um, how do men and women relate to each other? And if you ask that question 100 years ago, you'd get a different answer. If you ask that question today, but in a different part of the world, you might get a different answer as well. And so Brecht is saying, we might ask, how do we represent reality when we understand that by the chance of your birth, you behave in certain ways towards certain people and other ways towards other people, just because you happen to have been born in London in 1970 or in Beijing in 2000. Um, 
And he wants to say, well, if there are all these different ways, then how can we understand how they might work? And his theatre is effectively based on the kinds of contradictions that we find in society. And he seeks to uncover these and to stage them pretty much with the intention of saying, if we understand why things happen and these things don't please us, then if we understand the mechanisms, then we can try changing those mechanisms and make a better world for ourselves. Because ultimately we are the people who make a world, even though we might inherit um, the customs and conventions that we're born into, that doesn't mean that we have to accept them mm. or perpetuate them. Oh, it's fascinating. I mean, it's, it's always, Brett's always been a, a really interesting um, person to look at and study. And I think well, it wasn't until I sort of listened to yourself at university, I realised I had very little knowledge of this at all, and it goes so much deeper. Um, I, was, I was thinking about this today, actually. I remember you telling me a story, actually, at, at Sussex, about how the, I think there was a production of Mother Courage and Her Children at the National quite a few years ago now. And uh, there was, yeah, <laughs> your reactions are going, hmm. if anyone who can't see or our listeners, Dave is going, he's rolling his eyes and thinking, oh, here we go. I remember that production because, no, it's funny because uh, I think a lot of people get confused about Brett and like when they think that he wants, like, you know, when they see the stage managers on stage or you see people getting changed in there to represent alienation or some kind of what people think is alienation and how people were walking out the theatre and you were hearing them going oh my god that was so Brechtian that was I, I get it now I get it and you're, you're just sitting there with your head in your hands going no you don't <laughs> this is a very there's not even Brechtian at all it's what you think is Brechtian you know there's so much more to it than just seeing the um because anyone who didn't see that production they actually had stage managers on the stage so people could see them they could see people getting changed and people going oh wow they're alienating us they're showing us this is a theatre project. And it's like, uh, well, yes, that's true, but it's not quite Brexian. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, one of the things that we have to stop doing when thinking about Brecht is that Brecht offers us a bunch of devices. And if we put them all on stage, then we're performing Brecht's theatre. Um, I, I would rather think that Brecht's theatre is about using a certain kind of method which is based on this understanding of reality being defined by contradiction and not harmony. And there's a philosophical term for this, which is called dialectics, uh -huh. which is, a, yeah, um, not, not a word I really want to drop in this podcast um, or explore it too far. But dialectics effectively says that the world is constructed out of, um, out of uh, contradictions and that contradictions are therefore the motor of change. If we can identify contradictions, we can then seek to overcome them. And, you know, these, these exist on a personal level where we might behave in one way towards one person and a very different way towards another and ask ourselves, why do we do that? But it can work on a global level too, that if you say the world is capable of feeding every mouth on earth, and then you realise that however hundred thousand people, hundreds of thousands of people uh, die of starvation, that is a social contradiction. Oh. And in Marxism, yeah, one of the classic uh, contradictions is between capital and labor, that labor flogs its guts out, but who gets all the money? The capitalist. 
that's another contradiction at the heart of things. So I've always defined Brechtian theatre as the dialectical uh, engagement with dramatic material. Mm. And we don't, as I said, we don't need to get in too bogged down with dialectics, but in investi investigating dramatic material for its contradictions and staging those things is what I think is at the heart of Brechtian theatre, but how we do it is down to the theatre maker themselves. And this is sort of what uh, goes back to that talk I was giving at Goldsmiths all those years ago. There is no Brechtian style of acting. Wow. It is up to us as theatre makers to understand the ideas and to find potentially our own means for realising them. And this was the problem with that National Theatre production of Mother Courage. It was, let's use all these means that we associate with Brecht and that will make it Brechtian. And I would say that's not the case. It's this dialectical interrogation of dramatic material that may spawn all sorts of means. Ones that Brecht wasn't aware of. Brecht you know, died in 1956. Theatre has moved on quite a lot uh, from then. And we might seek different means, different ways of dramatising these contradictions. Mm. Yeah. And you know, I've, I was thinking about the sort of the contradictions or kind of I mean would, would it be fair to call them um obviously the Brechtian way of pronouncing it is social contradictions but would you call it like paradigms that that affect us in some way is that is that a way of are paradigms or social contradictions are they kind of the same thing or are they quite different not necessarily because each society might live under certain paradigms but those paradigms are subject to change hmm. um I mean something that I like to um kind of upset my students with is uh, a 1970s sitcom called Love Thy Neighbour. And it's something that is quite available on, uh, on YouTube. So I, the, the bet I try to make with them is whether they can watch more than three minutes of it, because it is a profoundly racist sitcom. Mm. So today we look at this and find it you know, pretty unbearable to watch. In the 1970s, it was huge. And so you've got to ask yourself, under which paradigm, using your language, um, was society working then? Right. And we can now look at the distance between that and the way that we think about race today. Now, you know, we're still in a very transitionary phase, especially in the light of Black Lives Matter, that white people are starting to become far more aware of the privileges that they unconsciously enjoy. Um, and so, you know, it's not as if we're in any great position of racial equality, despite the government's uh, report into this a few weeks ago that um, has been pretty much criticised by most of the groups that matter. But my point is that paradigm is kind of a way of looking at the relations between people at any one time. But I think, you know, comparing how we live today with how we lived in Britain 30 years ago, already suggests that paradigms have potentially shifted. So I, th I think contradictions um, exist throughout history. Mm. They will be of a different nature um, as, as we move through different times and different countries. Uh, so I think um, contradiction is probably the better term to use to interrogate the reality that we encounter in place. Mm. 
Okay, that's it's good to clear that up. Yeah, I mean, I think I actually encountered a bit of love thy neighbor once, and uh, let's say I probably had the same reaction as your students. So I was thinking, what on earth am I watching here? How is this? How is this credible? But it was the seventies. It was, it was. I mean, I wasn't alive for it, but uh, it was very, very different. And to think that people that sort of behavior was acceptable at the time, and I think. Um, Oh, it's mad. Um, I'm just thinking about, um, I suppose, yeah, I think the better word is social contradictions. You know, paradigms is used just very nicely explained as something just a little bit different. So I think if we're looking at social contradictions and just going back to Brecht again, uh, I'm just going to throw a few of these out there and then you can just tell me whether I'm on the right lines here. So social contradictions are, would you say that the wealthy who shops cheap? or the cheap that shops wealthy. Am I on the right lines? Yeah, um, except that, yeah, the cheap who shop wealthy might not have the money to actually buy any of the stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, um, if you listen to uh, the speech of the royal family oh. and the attempts to sound more like people that they encounter than the people that they meet behind palace walls would be contradictory, that we would expect a different kind of language and articulation, but this attempt to kind of lower their, um, their linguistic um, registers to you know, sound more like the people would be a contradictory um, behavior. Mm. So, yeah, and uh, you're thinking about how someone could be an advocate for animal rights, yet they'll still go home and eat a bacon sandwich or something like that. Um, yeah, um, uh, depending, I guess, on um, what kind of animal rights you are campaigning for. But yes, that would that would be, yeah, I mean, you, you're sort of, that, that's kind of more in the realm of hypocrisy, which is of course a contradiction. Yeah. Um, but the kind of contradictions, I guess, that are, the, are at the heart of um, uh, Brecht's theatre aren't, hypocrisy is a kind of moral category mm. you know that you're saying one thing and doing another um these these kinds of contradictions are what i might call more political that they are because of what society might expect of us and so moral what moral contradictions are the way that we negotiate the world mm. these more political contradictions are more the product of the way that society is set up and the things that we may be obliged to do in that society mm. so that, that those might be two different orders of contradiction and yeah and just finally actually while you're talking about um i suppose on a political level and of course um i think you've written a lot about brecht as a politicized theater practice as well um, in the case of his play, The, the uh, Resistible Rise of R2E, could, that, could the contradiction at the, at the heart of that potentially be, um, so you've got, you've got this dictator, of, as later transpires, a very evil dictator, but at the time when you know, you've got Hitler coming in, unifying Germany, and of course he had these speeches from Nuremberg saying, um, in us Germany marches, behind us Germany follows, and yet he looks sort of like this godlike figure who got rid of unemployment, you know, wanted to unify the country and bring it back to where it wants to be. But yet at the same time, he's planning a war in his head and he's planning to overtake Europe in destruction once again and do a another dreadful thing, which is to set up loads of camps around Europe 
to kill people simply because they were Jewish or they were or they were homosexual. And yet this is a guy wanting to unify the country, yet he wants to kill as well. I think Brecht would have been fascinated by that. Well, he was. I mean, yeah, he, was. Uh, he, he, he studied he studied Hitler from afar. As you noted, he went into exile. He went into exile in 1933 when the Reichstag uh, burnt down, stayed in European exile until he went uh, on one of the very last uh, uh, boats across uh, the Pacific to America in 1941. Mm -hmm. But yes, um, he, he was fascinated by Hitler and the contradictions that someone like that, yeah, someone who uh, yeah, claims to be acting for everyone, but is of course acting for you know just a few people. That is a very political um, contradiction. You know, when speaking about Das Volk, the people, um, it's only certain people that he's really addressing. And even though uh, the Jews in Nazi Germany were German citizens, they were not German enough for Hitler. And we certainly know the tragedy that befell them. Yes. Uh... And uh, yeah, that's just, I think Brecht would, I think, I think he's exposing the, I think this is a message I think, but we'll jump into some of the foundations in just a second. But I was thinking about how that, you know, he's exposing this underlying tension, which is, which is exposed through social contradictions in a way. So for the example of Hitler, you've got the, you've got the image uh, like it, it's kind of like an Instagram. <laughs> if I was to put like a 21st century spin on it, you've got an Instagram and reality version. So you've got two different personalities. So you've got this one, you've got an image of this, of this person, this leader who wants to unify everybody. Yet in reality, he's a monster who wants to kill Jewish people simply because he doesn't think they're strong enough. Well, he wants to kill them simply because they're Jewish and, and engulf Europe in, in flames for a second time. And well, yeah, I mean, there, there are lots of complex reasons for why um, Hitler is singling out the Jews in particular. But yeah, the, the big contradiction is claiming to speak for all Germans and not speaking for all Germans. Mm. So that's that's right at the heart of there. But, you know, another interesting thing about the play Arturo Uy is that Uy starts off as a nobody. Mm. He is a gangster who doesn't really have much gangstering work to do. And what you see as the play um, progresses is his construction. So mm -hmm. he isn't an evil person. He's, he's a nothing. He has no personality when we first meet him, but we find that the social situation constructs him scene after scene to becoming something that he wasn't at the beginning. Mm. And so that's also a really important part of this Brechtian theater that I think we'll probably touch on when we when we visit some of the uh, central terms that you're interesting interested in uh, uh, developing. Yeah, and actually, without further ado, let's jump straight in. So, the three foundations we're going to look at today are Gestus, Haltung, and Verfremdung in that order. As David correctly said off air, he said, "Let's do them in that order, right? That way, it make more sense." <laughs> so I trust him entirely. So let's let's begin with Gestus, which, um, funny enough, I still have your. I made a voice recording of your lecture at Goldsmiths University, which still exists on my phone even to this day, and uh, okay. I had to add another listen to that in preparation for today. And uh, to use actually, yeah, to use your words, uh, you said you class Gestus as connecting the actor's body to its social context. 
Um, so gestus is a theory investigating social physicality. And so the bodies are just as significant as the social, social standing position that one has. So your, so your body reflects your social standing. If you are of upper class, you have great posture, you stand, you know, you stand upright, you, have a, you walk as if you have authority. And if you're a peasant, you walk hunched over, quite scuttling quickly, trying to get out of somebody's way and therefore reflecting your social consciousness. Am I, am I correct in saying that? After a fashion, after a fashion, um, I mean, there are there are lots of problems with the word gestus because Brecht doesn't define it uh, that clearly, oh. and it's a word that he has kind of coined himself, and he uses it in lots of different ways. And you have just identified one of the main ways in which he does it. I'll talk about perhaps a secondary meaning, oh. a major secondary meaning in a second. But yes, you're right that um, one of the main meanings for the actor uh -huh. is to locate their body in terms of a social context. So it's not necessarily about status, but it is about linking um, the way that you hold your body to your position in society. So if you are a working person, you may be broken by your manual work and you lumber across the stage. On the other hand, you may find that your manual work has given you a very fit body. And that's something that can be used you know, in, your, in your struggle. Oh. And so there, there are some lovely pictures taken from the Berlin Ensemble in a book that um, you know, Brecht kind of uber edited um, in 1951 called Theatre Work. And it contains uh, on some of its pages, pictures of the same actor playing very different roles. And you'll find that there is the same actor playing, you know, maybe four different workers. And each of those bodily postures is quite different because, mm. yeah, when you walk down the street, you wouldn't say, there's a middle-class person. You can tell because that middle-class person's walking just like every other middle-class person. <laughs> um, and so this this nature this notion of gestus of a socially embodied physicality is one that is based on a clear observation and an attempt to highlight what those qualities are of this particular middle class person this particular upper class person so you know an upper class person may indeed walk with confidence and authority on the contrary though that person might be quite unassuming because they don't have to worry about money or status. Mm. And so the investigation into gestus is never linear. It's never if this, then that. It's more what kind of possibilities does a middle-class person have that might be different from an upper-class person or a working-class person. So you know, the actor isn't automatically nudged into a certain area but certain choices are I guess off off limits because their class doesn't necessarily allow that but there are people you know middle class people who will slum it and pretend to be more street than they are that's you know a perfectly valid um, way of thinking about this but your your gestus is kind of a basic physicality that is related to your social position and that idea of gestus most likely 
won't change in the course of a production because our social context rarely does change. I mean, if you are made unemployed, let's say that you're, you know, um, on the board of directors of something and some scandal uh, leads to your downfall and you're penniless overnight, then your social situation has radically changed. Hmm. Similarly, if you're um, on universal credit and you win the lottery, your social situation will have changed yeah, radically and you would change your gestus almost certainly. But, you know, in most plays, the social situation of someone doesn't change that rapid, radically. And as a result, that idea of a gestus will remain potentially quite stable. Yeah. Um, I just want to note one other important meaning of gestus yeah. that Brecht also uses. Yeah. Um, he also says that, that situations and actions have a gestus. So um, when, when Judas kisses Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, yeah. the gestus of that kiss is not one of love. No. It is one of betrayal, yeah. or it might be one of self-enrichment. Uh, it could combine those two. But the act of kissing Jesus has a gestus. And Brecht was also keen to bring this out in performance as well. Why is someone doing this? Is this an act of kindness? Is this an act of cruelty? Is this an act of this, that, or the other? So actions themselves also have a gestus. So Brecht rather unhelpfully uses the same term. But, you know, um, you might find that someone just uh, you know, asking a question of someone might have a gestus of discovery or a gestus of concealment, you know, that they're asking a question, but not for the reasons that uh, the question seems to be asked. So gestus is quite a flexible and useful term for, again, digging beneath the surface right. that um, gestus for the actor in that in that sense of physicality is saying you need to show what's going on beneath the surface that you come from this particular position that you are a man that you are a woman that you are you have this ethnicity you have this sexuality and these things will affect the way that you hold yourself and so that's kind of digging beneath the surface and this idea of an action having a gestus as well um, is again about revealing what's happening beneath the surface. Hmm. And I think that it's interesting because um, while someone ha has that appearance and one could judge someone at the drop of a hat based on their, 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 their clothes or the way they walk or the way they behave just in general, but I think I read somewhere that it's it's not meant to judge, it's not meant to um, encourage like dismissiveness or, or, or I can't speak this morning, uh, de denigrating uh, behavior. It's not meant to offend or assault or assault some insult someone, sorry. Uh, it's actually meant to show that if, if someone is walking around and they're looking lethargic or they're looking tired, like, like a roofer or a bartender or a manager or someone or someone who works in the post office, you know, immediately one could look at that and say they've got a steady job they're not earning that much money but they're doing the best to do um in terms of the labor like we talked about earlier so the labor side of things but that being said if you dig under the surface you know they are showing you with their gestos their the amount of hours that they're, they're, they're putting in the 
drive to actually go to work to earn money and put food on the table or to or just to show some kind of meaningful representation of that inner exhaustion yeah. and that lack of energy absolutely i mean if you if you read marx's the capital or capital as it's uh, known in english um you'll find that capitalists who you'd think would be you know the moral brunt of marx's criticism he says you know they are also caught up in this system and they are subject to the brutal laws of, co of competition, uh, just like anyone else. So if you see a capitalist on stage looking tired, this is a clarification. Now, we can reach moral judgments about these people if we so desire, but really Gestos is clarifying relationships. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's often hard not to judge people, but it tries to give context to what's going on. I doubt that you know Marx has much sympathy for capitalists, but he he does acknowledge <laughs> that once once they're in that system, if they don't pull their finger out, then they will be left behind by competition, and they will find that they can't sell their goods. And so you know the emotional and you know, energetic investment, even of capitalists, is something that is a part of the system. Mm. And when you start identifying a connection with a system or a social setup then that moral argument starts to weaken and we start to understand the politics of the situations that people are in. Mm. I think that's a lovely uh, lead on to, if we then go into the second foundation, which is Haltom, which is uh, an, ex an extension on Gestos. Uh, it has two, well, there's two ways you can pronounce it. There's Haltung or Haltungen, which is German for attitude and posture. Posture? Yeah, posture, that's why I can't read my own writing. Uh, so so that these two are they are intertwined, but they are, but they can well, they're not can be, they they are different in a way, because Haltung is would you say it's more, you know, Gestus is looking at the physicality, and then Haltung is more about the emotional response to not action. necessarily. Um, correct? I mean Haltung is if you if you translated Haltung literally into um, English, you would say it was attitude. It's just attitude, yeah. But attitude, I mean, it, it also means posture, and Haltungen is just the plural. <laughs> um, but um, when we think about attitude in English, we think of it as pretty much a mental category. I have this attitude towards her, oh. uh, I have this attitude towards my work, and it's something that happens in the head. But because Haltung, it, you know, if you if you uh, sort of transliterated it into um, English, it is holding. It's the same word. It has the same it's the, it's the same root, and it is how you hold yourself as well. Yeah. And so, in German, Haltung is a physicalized attitude. Hmm. So it is something that your body will signify. And the reason why I prefer to use the German word Haltung is that it combines the mental and the physical yeah. into this idea of a physicalized attitude. And as you'll know from your standard English, attitude always has an object. You always have an attitude towards something. Yeah. And as you encounter different things, by definition, your haltung, your physicalized attitude will change. So if you enter a scene and, um, 
everything is as you expect it to be and your haltung towards this person is as it is and then suddenly there's a huge revelation it's quite possible that on stage your haltung will change quite radically when that revelation is made mm. and this goes back to a kind of stage dictum that um you know you'll you'll hear in other theatres, apart from the Brechtian theatre, but uh, it applies particularly well to this, is that you play the situation and not the character. This is a really important thing that Haltung allows you to do. That if you are in a scene yeah, with your parents, your Haltung towards them will be different from your Haltung towards your friends. Mm. And this allows um, uh, an audience to compare what's going on and hopefully ask the ever crucial question why mm. why did that person behave in one way towards that group of people and the other way to another group of people mm. and haltung therefore if it is physicalized then you are building on this basic physicality of the gestus and you are refining that basic physicality with every situation that you encounter. So if you um, are meeting, let's say that you're a middle manager and the people that you manage, you treat dreadfully. Oh. But when you're in front of the boss, you are always you know, very, very servile. <laughs> You'll do whatever the boss says. Very professional. So... Yeah, indeed. So when you're caught in the middle like that, you are displaying contradictory haltungen. So on the to one set of people, you are a monster. To the other, you're a puppy dog. And this is the same person. And so by physicalizing the attitude towards your underlings and physicalizing your attitude towards your boss, you are showing the audience something really clear that in this situation, I have to bite my lip and say, yes, sir, yes, sir, three bags full, sir. And in this situation, I can let rip and you know, just absolutely whip these people into delivering on the demands made by that boss. Hmm. So you've got a kind of moral question here of, is this person a coward? Is this person a sadist? But hopefully you're seeing the different behaviours in the different social contexts of the situations. And it's your job as a, as a spectator to say, what accounts for these contradictions? And you might find, you know, this, this middle manager gets fired and gets employed in a cooperative where everyone is paid the same amount of money. Mm. Does that change the way that that person relates to the boss and to the people seemingly uh, beneath them and again you'd be saying ah you change the situation you change the relationship but the only way that you can see that changed relationship is by exploiting the artificiality of the theater where naturalism isn't demanded where we can stylize the body to embody these different attitudes in different situations and draw the audience's attention to those changes in haltung and that is a kind of basis of Brecht's political theatre. Mm. And I think you use um, I use another very good example, um, example of Oedipus as well, um, how Oedipus changes when he realises he's caused the plague 
um, or how Hamlet reacts to the ghost of his father's uh, revelation. You know, there's that, specifically with, with Hamlet's one, I remember talking about on a previous podcast with Harry Burton, who was a friend, of, uh, actually was a friend and collaborator of Pinter, um, talked about how, you know, I think Pinter would look at Shakespeare and specifically Hamlet as that really key example of how Claudius addresses everyone saying, look, yeah, there's been a war, but everything's fine now. Everything's gonna be okay, we will recover. But Hamlet's the only one who can see the contradictions. He's the only one who can see the underlying um, um, crap that's that's actually underneath this whole thing, and can think to himself. Sort of, sort of. But Brecht, yeah. Brecht would read read Hamlet in a different kind of way. Yeah. In in one of his major um, works that was actually published in his life. I mean, uh, I've, I've got five volumes of Brecht's writings, but very few of them were published in his lifetime. Hmm. And he opens his um, brief discussion of Hamlet saying, it is a time of warriors. A time of warriors. Now, isn't that a peculiar way to, um, to start this up? That is, he says, it's, yeah. he says, it's a time of warriors. Yeah. And what he's saying is that we learn that Hamlet's dad, old Hamlet, was in a fight with Norway. And that this was the society, the feudal society, in which battles took place and the like. But Claudius represents a different kind of society, um, a society that we you know, identify more with the Renaissance. And so for Brecht, Hamlet is caught between two different ages, a feudal age and a Renaissance, an early modern age. Mm. And that his tragedy is not that he actually sees through it, but that he is caught between these two ages and come the end, when he is responsible for this bloodbath, um, you know, all of a sudden this is a relapse into the old age of warriors, when he's trying to apply his mind and his reason to solving the uh, mystery that the ghost presents him with. And so Brecht sees Hamlet in what is what he would call a historicized way. Mm. Because Brecht is saying that when we look at Gestus and when we look at Haltung, we cannot dismiss where something is happening and when something is happening. Mm. And I mean, without wanting to move you on uh, that quickly, this, this does bring us on to Fefremdung, but I'm just going to make one, <laughs> one quick note about, yeah, um, about psychology. Yeah. Because this idea of Haltung is quite a radical idea because it effectively says that as individuals, we, we often talk about the people on stage as characters. Mm. But Brecht was a little suspicious of this term because it implied perhaps we have fixed characteristics, mm. that we behave in certain ways and those give us you know, a certain way of navigating that person for an actor. Mm. But this idea of Haltung pretty much destroys that idea mm. because in that example I gave you of the middle manager mm. is this person a dreadful spineless creature or is he a, a, an equally dreadful you know overlord of other people both those no. qualities do not sit well with each other no. and so Brecht would say that actually that person on stage has no characteristics no characteristics that will 
shine through in every scene that we see them in. They will behave differently in different situations. And as a result, really, that thing that could be called a character is perhaps better referred to as a figure, a figure that is flexible and really in terms of psychology, mm. Brecht would dismiss that and say that a figure is nothing more than the sum of their Haltungen. If you put all the Haltungen together, yeah. that's who you've got on stage. And so, you know, when people um, do things that are out of character and they say, well, that, that just wasn't me. I'm just not that person. Mm. Brecht would counter and say, it was you. You know, who else was it? These, you are capable of this. You might not want to admit it, but you are capable of this kind of behavior. You might not do it very often, but that is still an element of your biography. You have done that. And as a result, you know, this, this is what you are potentially capable of. So the, the, we like to think of ourselves as having characteristics, but this kind of theater invites us to dispel that illusion oh. and say, in certain situations, you might be the bravest person and in others, you might be utterly cowardly. Now, does that mean you're a brave person or a cowardly person? Well, it means that you're capable of both and that certain situations provoke that, um, that amazing act. Whereas for the rest of the time, you felt quite intimidated by your, um, by your position. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a very liberated view of what human beings are capable of and referring to those people on stage as figures rather than characters can help us unlock that prison house of characteristics. Mm. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Um, and like me, just like you say, we'll, we'll get on to the friend in just a moment. But if we just go back just a couple of steps, um, but that's really fascinating to hear, actually. We'll, we'll sure we'll talk about that a bit more in a second. Um, I, I let's just let's talk about now about the um, how Gestos and how to, how they can fit together in some ways, even though they are their own separate ideologies in their own given right, of course. But there are some similarities. Um, so I think we've discussed it's uh, Gestos is the physical body presence, whereas Haltung is more about a um, a psychological sort of the more towards psychological kind of body the body experience in in some ways. Um, so you can have a variety of gestures which are not quite representative of Haltung, but because they're both dealing with the body, uh, emotions and body at the same time, they can. Inter intertwine if that makes sense does that make sense or am i just talking a load of um yeah <laughs> um, well you 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 needn't tie haltung to emotion right um you know i mean if uh it, it may be an emotional response but it could be an intellectual response as well that um if you enter a scene totally confident and then your accountant comes in and says, look, I'm really sorry, but um, there's been a huge mistake and you don't have the 10,000 pounds that you thought you had. Yeah. Um, okay, there'll be an emotional effect, but you might also want to think, what do I do now? What am I, what am I actually going to do and process that with your mind? Um, I mean, Haltung is a kind of an extension of Gestos. That yeah. um, if you have this, basic gestic physicality yeah, then yeah. you start to fine tune that for the different situations that you find yourself in and so 
you know, it's your sort of basic model of the way you're holding yourself on stage and then you finesse it um, so that, yeah, when you enter the stage, maybe you look fearful because you know that your job's on the line. Maybe you look carefree because you think that your bank balance is absolutely healthy and your work's going fine and all that kind of thing. Um, and those, uh, those attitudes towards your situation are already a refinement of this basic notion of gestus. Mm. So um, they are, they are utterly uh, intertwined with each other, that you find this basic physicality, but you use that as a springboard for all of the Haltungen that you will display um, in, in, the, in the play as a whole. Mm. Good. Well, I'm glad I, glad I got that cleared up. <laughs> but, uh, no, but it's it's interesting to hear about. Yeah, I've just got some notes here about uh, sort of between the two of them, really. Drop of a hat opinion. So they're not characteristics, more of a psychological thing. Um, we talked about Gestus is changeable. Yeah, we're saying Gestus is changeable as society is changeable as well. And how one middle class man is not representative of all other middle classes. So there's a a mixture of entitlement and or well actually not and or it's either entitlement or or humility in some ways so there is that balance within it as well but there are but there are there are i mean like we talked about they are two of they are two individual things but you know but the physicality can sort of drive the emotion if that makes it if that makes sense you know i'm i'm I'll probably sounded like I don't know anything at all, so it's good to actually have this all cleared up. But um, well, yeah, yeah, emotion, emotion is not cut off from society. Mm. Um, yeah, if you think of the emotion of shame, yeah, uh, shame is always contextualized in a set of norms that are being breached in some way. And you know, if you if you if we go back to homosexuality that was criminalized in this country until the late 1960s, hmm. the law was telling gay people to be ashamed of their sexuality. It wasn't that um, that sexuality was shameful in itself. It was socially stigmatized. And you know, the, the notion of stigma and shame hmm. uh, are things that change over time. So having an emotional response to social um, structures is absolutely the case. I mean, I, I saw something, yeah, kind of interesting a um, couple of weeks ago about young people at university who are uh, groomed as money mules. That um, they're told that if they allow money to be put into their accounts and then taken out for the purposes of laundry, they get a, a cut of that money and blah blah blah. And the people they were speaking to were people who are all really, yeah, very quite materialistic. That they wanted um, a life that was reflected in the things that they owned. And as a result, they were very susceptible to this kind of grooming. So this idea of jealousy or envy is also an emotional one, mm. but it's one that is based in things and objects and the distribution of those things and objects will have an effect on whether you envy someone their, their object or their lifestyle. And mm. so, you know, uh, anger is similarly a, a, a potentially very social um, uh, emotion that we might get angry about injustice. 
or angry, even that we have been slighted in some way because we have a certain view of ourselves within a society, whereas some other people who are slighted won't feel angry at all and feel, yeah, that always happens to me. That's that's because I'm I'm like this in, in society. So uh, emotion isn't something that is divorced from society at all. It's actually closely you know, tied into where one is in society, what one's allowed to do, what one's not allowed to do. Yeah, oh, that's good. That's that's really interesting. Um, good. So let, let's jump into the final one, which we've already had a little look at already, but I'm sure we will look back on again, which of course is Befremdung, which, uh, which apologies for this, David, I know you're not going to like this next sentence, which, which loosely translates as alienation. And uh, rather badly as well, it's not actually alienation, as I'm sure you will clarify for me. But ultimately, as you yourself have said, it's making well, what the friendong is all about is making the strange familiar. Making the familiar strange. Making the familiar strange. I know it was one or the other. Uh, and to, again, to quote yourself. Um, so and again, this just touching on dialectics again. You said in your. Um, speech at Goldsworth University, you say instability and impermanence create a dialectical reality. Um, discuss. <laughs> okay. Well, let, let's let's get the translation out of the way first. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> you you will read, and your listeners will read, Fremdung translated as alienation, and this is a really bad translation. It's a vestige of the 1960s that you know, kind of kept going until scholars, certainly before me, really tried to um, find a better translation of this. Alienation is bad because alienation is a wholly negative concept. Hmm. And what Brecht is doing in his theatre isn't negative, it is a critical uh, concept. And by critical, I don't mean negative, hmm. I mean that you don't take anything at face value, you interrogate it. Hmm. That's what I, you know, students out there, if you're writing critical essays, you're not putting your knives into things, you are not taking things at, at face value, and you're evaluating them from that position, I hope. <laughs> um, so alienation, absolutely dreadful translation. It's a historical vestige, but you'll find that in most modern works on, uh, on Brecht, different translations are used. I prefer making the familiar strange because Verfremdung is in that single word in German. Um, it is a process. Mm -hmm. It is a process, just like you know, if we talk about to galvanize or something like that, that is a process of taking something that's a bit lackluster and putting some energy into it. Verfremdung similarly is finding something that appears familiar and making it strange so that we as an audience will look at it in a different way. Now, you could say that all art is fefremdung, that we look at, you know, the everyday lives of people and we see them in ways that we don't expect and we see them in a different way. We discuss them, we are interested by them. Brecht's fefremdung is obviously a, a more refined view of let's do some art and let's um, make people think about things in a different way because he's more specific here. Effectively, he's saying that in, um, in naturalism, we're given the world in a way that we recognize. And as a result, we don't really stop and ask why. Wow. And so Fefremdung's role 
is to take that world that we recognize and to say, hold on, why is it that someone behaves in this way? Why is it that that person does that and not something else? And so Verfremdung is this very idea of digging behind the surface and hoping to reveal what's happening. Mm. Now, um, an exercise that I often set to students as a way of sort of just grappling with Verfremdung in a really quite straightforward way is that I ask two, two of them to be people who are dining in a posh restaurant. And uh, these two this. people, yep, these two yeah. people will have um, saved up to eat there. So they're not familiar with the way that things work. And the jo their job is to go in, they get shown to their table by a waiter who is helpful, who isn't sniffy, who doesn't look down on them. Yeah. And uh, they get shown to the table, they um, are offered a wine list, they choose a bottle of wine, the waiter serves them the wine, and they drink it. That's a completely logical and recognisable sequence of events. Mm -hmm. But what they're encouraged to do is to unpick all of these actions as processes, because actions are processes, mm -hmm. that they have a beginning, they have a middle, possibly an end as well. And so, yeah, when, um, when this couple gets shown to their table, because they're unfamiliar with the conventions of a very expensive restaurant, they can show, we don't know whether we sit down or the waiter pulls the chair from behind us and sits us down. Oh. And if it's, let's say, a man and a woman, is the waiter doing that only for the woman or for the man as well? Mm -hmm. So you've got all these things that if they were regular diners in there, these things would be utterly straightforward. But because this is a special occasion that they've saved up for, then they are showing how strange things that might seem normal to a different social group might be. And they have to think really carefully about how they behave in this situation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, right at the end, let's say, um, yeah, they've paid £50 for a bottle of wine because that was the cheapest. Now, gosh, uh, I hope I never have to pay that amount for a bottle of wine. £50 for a bottle of wine. <laughs> yeah. But you see, students might say, okay, and now you drink it. And they just pick it up and drink it. And I say, hold on, hold on, wait, wait one second. What do you need to think about here? Would you drink this the same way as you would drink a £5 bottle of wine on a Friday night? And they say, uh, no. Yeah. And so they have to show an audience that this is a special bottle of wine, that this is a special glass that they've got in their hand. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, they would, they will sip it, probably, because they want to get the most out of this thing that has cost them an arm and a leg. And so it's about being aware of all the things that we take for granted in our day-to-day -day exchanges with reality. Mm. And to try and break them down into, um, into their component parts. And I introduce an idea to actors of not walking and talking. I mean, I say that because it rhymes, but it effectively means that when you're on stage, and this applies to everyone on stage, you can either say something, 
or you can move or you can perform a gesture, but you cannot do any of those things at the same time. This allows the sort of transactional nature of our social interactions to become clear. Mm. And so not walking and talking, I mean, it's, it's something that you can't, well, for, first for actors, it is completely unnatural. Um, try not walking and talking, you, f you find, oh my goodness, um, what order do I have to do these things in? And you start to clarify how social interaction works. And as I said, for an actor, it's, it's really difficult. And when I've worked on whole shows that have had, you know, let's say four week uh, rehearsal periods, it's really only at the end of the second week that the actors feel comfortable with this. Yeah. Yeah. But the results are amazing. And I might do a quick plug for my website, which is brechtinpractice.org, uh, where you can see the documentations of two of these shows. And I hope that that will give a, a sense of what this looks like in practice. The whole point of the Brecht in Practice website is to translate some of these theories that might sound difficult or hard to implement and to show real examples of what goes on. And you have documentations of the full shows Closer by Patrick Marber and uh, The Crucible by um, Arthur Miller. And this idea of not walking and talking is a way of breaking down the way that we relate to each other by remembering this is why we do these things. In order to say this, I have to look over there in order to check that that person will allow me to say this. I mean, there's a bit in The Crucible where the clerk of the court enters uh, a house to arrest someone. Mm -hmm. And so in our production, he walks in very sure of himself. The court has invested him with authority. He notices in the corner that the reverend is there, someone who is socially his superior, and he acknowledges him with a bow. So we have the contradiction there broken down for the audience of here's someone who seems cocksure, but straight after his arrival, he's deferent. And we understand then something more complex about this person. And that complexity would not have been told if he just strutted around the place as if he owned it. Mm. He is acting under the authority of the clergy. And so that confidence is authorized by the clergy. And so that's telling us something more complex. And this is the idea of Fefremdon, mm. making the familiar strange. Now, the, the easy way of dealing with this clerk would be, he comes in, he says, I am the law and I'm going to arrest you. And that's what we see. But by acknowledging that his power is invested in him by a sort of theocracy that is in play in that, uh, in that particular um, drama, we're understanding where that confidence comes from and we don't see that figure as necessarily a confident figure, oh. but one whose confidence comes from the power that's invested in him. So that is an example of Fefremdung, of making the familiar strange. He walks in as we would expect him to. He has been charged by the law to arrest this person, but we then complicate that reality and we understand actually he's not that powerful. No. His place in society doesn't grant him a lot of power, but 
he's had that power placed on his shoulders and he can therefore strut about. Mm. That is an example of Fefremdung uh, there. Yeah, I th um, funny enough, I did the Crucible um, a few years ago and um, that's uh, Ezekiel Chiva who enters the scene and talks to Reverend Hale. Um, it just reminded me now is, is that Chiva has these lines where he, where he goes, where he, where he, he, well, for anyone who doesn't know the play, um, this happens at the end of Act Two, and he comes in and basically says, I have um, a warrant to arrest John Proctor's wife. And as you say, he comes in saying, look, I'm the court, this has got to happen now. But then his lines after that are, you know, John Proctor suddenly takes that, actually, that, that could be another example. Someone like John Proctor, who's just a farmer, just a, you know, essentially like peasant, someone who doesn't have a lot of authority. And yet in that moment, he has, he commands the room. He suddenly, you would think he was the one who was charged, who was sent by the court and has that courtly presence and authority. And then Chiva suddenly goes into this shell of, and kind of panic mode. Like he says to, uh, John Fox says to his wife, fetch, fetch Mary Warren here. And he goes, no, I'm forbidden to leave her from my sight. I'm forbidden. And uh, well, what was really nice in the production of that at the Old Vic a few years ago, uh, the guy playing Shiva at that moment suddenly became this frenzied panic, almost like a child throwing a tantrum in a way. Like, no, like, no, no, I'm in control here. I'm the one who's doing this. I'm the one who's doing that. But yet, as you just say, well, you, you, you have that authority already, but you're behaving like you're the weakest man in the room. And is that making the, and I get it the right way around this time, the familiar strange, I've got it wrong again, haven't I? <laughs> it's the other way around. No, 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 it is making the familiar strange. The more that we think we understand something and are then shown something different, but this idea of showing is really important as well. The Brechts is a theatre of showing, it's not a theatre of concealment. And so it's showing that at one point this person is very confident and at the next he is intimidated. And we're always being asked, well, what has changed and how has this come about? Mm. So this, this importance of showing mm -hmm. is all about be beckoning to the audience in a way, asking that question why over and over again. Fantastic. It's fantastic. It's it's really interesting to see how I mean, his whole theory is just is it, it's it's if it, it, the the vibe I get it's it's digging into you. It, it it wants to say what are you not telling me? What what are you not showing me? What is your inner reality? And how are you contradicting yourself? I want to see your vulnerability. I was like I want to see what are you hiding. Or is it strength? Are you hiding in inner strength and you're, present, you're projecting weakness? You're actually, you're stronger than you, than you think you are. And it's about uncovering, essentially, would, you, would this be a fair analogy that in investigating the social contradictions, he's essentially searching for the absolute truth? Would that be a fair analogy? Uh, it's absolute truth. Um... You can say no, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, this is, this is what I'm saying, because um, the truth is relative. I mean, Brecht, Brecht has a, a, a phrase that the truth is concrete, but the truth changes over time. Yeah. Uh, things were, that were true you know, 30 years ago are no longer true now. So, yes, he's looking for truth, but absolute truth 
might not be the right way of describing it because I don't think that um, I don't think that the world that Brecht understands has room for absolutes in it, that there is a relativity that is brought about by history. History changes and so our values change. And so something that is true 10 years ago might not be true today. And we make more discoveries and hopefully we expose more falsehoods. And so that idea of truth is always going to be slightly provisional and possibly relative. Mm. But, it, but you want to understand the truth of the situation as it stands, and that truth is likely to be contradictory. Mm. Yeah, and then again, going back to what we talked about at the start of this, you know, um, that said that the 70s sitcom where racism was encouraged, you've got... Example- it wasn't even encouraged, it was just normal. This wasn't encouraging people to be racist, it was to say, this is how things are. And this is this is probably the greatest crime that you could commit on a Brechtian stage, saying, that's life, you can't change that. The whole point of digging behind these facades and these surfaces yeah. is to say, this is how reality is being produced. And if you don't like it, then think what mechanisms might be in train to make this conflict not happen, or for this person not to be weeping, but to be happy. Mm. fascinating it really is i mean to to perhaps sort of tie that together our production of um the crucible was to expose the contradictions of proctor which is something that um certainly that old vic production doesn't do because it just feeds into arthur miller's version of him as a sort of flawed hero yeah but you know i mean the fact that arthur miller gets Proctor's wife to say do you know what it was my fault that you cheated on me because I'm so ugly I mean for God's sake it's it's unconscionable yeah and so the the work the work that we were trying to do was to make Proctor a far more problematic hero so that again em- embracing his his contradictions on the one hand yes he is the person who speaks up in act three in the witch trials and says this is a sham mm. But the contradiction is that he does that from his position of a a patriarchal privilege. Um, He is prepared to go to the gallows in the name of his principles. Um, He leaves behind him uh, a wife, two children, and a third one on the way. Now, you know, the, the idea that he's going to leave them high and dry isn't entertained by him. Um, the idea that he is um, he's he's able to wield violence while condemning violence is another contradiction in him, and you know the the ways that we engineered a critique of Proctor was by using his wife as an ironic commentator on stage, using exactly the same words um, that she has in the in the play, but mm. if she de- delivers these. If she delivers the lines where she admits to her own um, ugliness being the source of his adultery, we had her deliver them as if this is what you want to hear, isn't it? And as a result, Proctor then you know, almost beats her within you know, uh, a breath of her life for being so cheeky, mm. for being so impudent, 
So whereas in a normal production, these lines are delivered pretty sincerely, here we weren't able to treat them like that. And they remind us of the violent behavior that we've seen Proctor um, uh, use towards his servant, Mary, uh, earlier. So, you know, um, Brechtian theatre allows us to expose these contradictions, even mm. if the playwright seeks to stifle them. That's great. Yeah, it, it's so interesting to see how that theory can be applied across, you know, not just like Nardi Brecht's work, Land Threat in the Opera, Visit to Rise of R2E, but you can apply that to a Shakespeare or to an Arthur Miller or to a... Um, or an Ibsen or, or, or someone like that, you know, that there, there is a universality to his work. Yeah, I mean, Brecht, Brecht's um, starting point there is that if a play is realistic, if it gives you a sense of the world as it is, then you can apply these, um, these categories in your analysis uh -huh. and use ideas of Gestas and Haltung uh -huh. in order to expose the contradictions that naturalism might run run yeah maybe a little roughshod over mm. well again that's again that's incredible i think i've said that so many times already so <laughs> no but no but i really do mean it i do mean it um yeah this has been amazing i think that's a lovely point to uh to draw today to a close i think because uh, i'm very aware of the time and you know, you've got to shoot off in a in a moment because he's a busy man or david and uh yeah but um no that, i think that's a lovely note to finish on uh in terms of how the, the universality and how it can be applied across all spectrums and how his work, I think, will, will allow us to challenge theatre going, well, going forward, I think, on a permanent basis, I think. He's always asking questions. There's more to theatre than just, you know, you can go to a pantomime and switch your brain off and, you know, there's nothing to it. Whereas if you go to Brecht, you're asked questions. Like, why is that character... Why does they? Why does she walk around with a slump? Yet she's the main character. What? What? Why is that the case? Why is someone standing so upright and has the presence and has court authority? Why are they walking around like the weakest person in the room? But it was no, they walk around with this with the posture and everything else. But in reality, they're the weakest person in the room. They don't have any authority. So why is that the case? There. Why? Why is that contradiction there? And I think that intellectual engagement. I think will will spark debates of Brecht's work for, for many years to come and uh, will for, forever evolve. And I think by the, by, the, um, by the time you retire, David, I think you'll have just a whole bookcase of Brecht throughout the years, of not, of not just the Berlin Ensemble and everyone I've else. already. <laughs> not been all your own work, like by David Barnett, <laughs> but, you know, because you know, uh, believe me, guys, having known David for the year at university, he writes, I, mean, you, I have to say, you write, incredibly quickly it's like and like next week you'll have another article out in another another journal and it's like how does he do it and i was like it's it's crazy but um but yeah i mean that's enough for me but i was supposed to say david thank you so much for for your time today thank you for being so generous and for thank you for inviting me yeah you know, and also thank you for schooling me again as well just to correct my thinking because i was very clear i've got a lot of this stuff probably in the wrong way but it's good to have that um have it corrected and have it put put in the right direction so yeah and, and hopefully you listeners as well will um would have learned a lot if you're writing essays or discovering Brecht I hope today you'll have really come away with a clearer understanding of the foundations of it and how you can go to your tutors go to your teachers go to your friends whoever is you're talking to and say that 
you know, we have a more rounded version of Brecht and how all this, how this stuff, like what we thought of Brecht is actually a lot of bollocks. And actually it's more about this and the social contradictions, the dialectical understanding of his work and everything. So yeah, I think we'll end the recording there. Then I'll say goodbye to you just after we finish. So once again, David, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure seeing you again. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And yeah, thank you so much for joining me on the Uncensored Critic. And thank you for the listeners as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Have a good day. Cheers.